You've been cornered on an alien world. You have no phaser, and a deadly, sweet-smelling cloud of conscious vapor is bent on your agonizing demise. You begin to think there's no hope. Maybe you should have called your mother one last time. But wait! You reach for your handy flip-top communicator and ring up your cheerful transporter chief to get beamed away to safety. None of this would have been possible without one of Starfleet's greatest tools, the communicator. Some of you might question the logic of having a communications device that supports the aesthetic of one which was antiquated 300 years ago. Well, the big difference being a cellular telephone was essentially a two-way radio consisting of a radio transmitter and a radio receiver. When you would chat with your friend or food vendor on your cellular telephone, your phone converted your voice into an electrical signal, which was then transmitted via radio waves to the nearest cellular tower. The network of cellular towers then relayed the radio wave of your friend's cell phone, which converted it into an electrical signal and then back again to sound. Radio waves transported digitized voice or data in the form of oscillating electromagnetic fields. The rate of oscillation was simply known as frequency. Radio waves carried this information, traveled at the speed of light, which was mind-bogglingly slow, as it turns out. Cellular telephones transmitted radio waves omnidirectionally. These waves could be absorbed and reflected by surrounding objects before they even reached the nearest cell tower. For example, when the phone was placed next to your head during a call, a significant portion, over half on average, of the emitted energy is absorbed into your head and body. Mmm, like stone knives and bearskins. In this event, much of the cell phone's EMF energy is wasted and no longer available for communication. But, with the advent of subspace communications, we have a target of a different color. Subspace radio transmitters and receivers are far more complicated, dealing with high-dimensional physics. It took a while to get that in your pocket. Sure, radio signals move at the speed of light, but subspace radio transmissions move at the equivalent of six light-years per hour. This essentially creates real-time communication, or as close as you're going to get. But this required a form factor similar to technology from the late 20th and 21st centuries. Just consider it a classic. But it doesn't really matter, because by the 24th century, these communication devices were integrated into the standard uniform badges and became known as comm badges. Users no longer had to speak directly into the communicator, but rather activate and deactivate them with the touch of a finger. And if aboard a ship, without a physical touch. Though they were originally separate devices, the communicator has shared roots with another game-changing invention, the Universal Translator, or the Telecommunicator. To understand the modern communicator, it's important to understand both. As a dedicated device, the Universal Translator had a constantly updated library of languages and cultures to fall back on for reference while hearing language in near real time. Working on its own or in tandem with the ship's computer, it also read the tone and inflection of the speaker and cross-referenced it with the language and culture of the listener. It worked to draw on all previous learned experiences and create an approximation of what a new speaker was trying to convey. 
Now, originally, it was conceptualized as a combination of neural scanning and manipulation of sound waves. When certain patterns were detected within reasonable proximity to other neural pattern sources, the Universal Translator quickly performed a more thorough scan of a neural pattern associated with the source of speech, thus gaining access to the intended message. It interpreted it based on brain waves. When it detected sound waves conforming to recognized generic verbalization patterns emanating from a source without detectable neural patterns, it activated a different set of subroutines that instead directly translated the sound waves themselves without any intent. The whole idea was that it wouldn't just translate the language, it translated your experience of the language. But this approach was obviously problematic on a number of levels, and a different approach was taken. They would just use the AI translations. Dedicated communication devices were developed to integrate translation using the ship's AI learning, not just invasive brain scans. Eventually, translation features would work through communicators without need for tethering with the main computer, and all was well. So how did that work? If you were in a situation where you would say, Transporter room three, come in. The communicator starts recording your voice, and by the time you get to the end of your sentence, it knows your target destination and begins transmitting before you even say, come in. With the last bit being transmitted on a slight delay, so the person on the other end hears the message as spoken. You've now established a two-way communication. If you say the name of the intended recipient, the delay is shorter. If you don't specify your recipient, for instance, you just say, transporter room, the computer runs through a default algorithm which connects you through a series of logical criteria. It may send you to the main transporter room, or if there's been recent activity in a random transporter room, it will likely send you there. If you call somebody specific, the computer does not take liberties in redirecting your call to anyone else. For instance, if you tried to contact Mr. Kyle in Transporter Room 2, and it can't contact his communicator, it won't assume you wanted the chief in Transporter Room 1 and put you through to the next most senior officer. If you call a place, but not a person, say, engineering, it'll connect you to the in-ship ambient intercom system in that location, the kind that is built into every division, ops, and workstation. In older starships, these were dedicated wall mounts with in-panel interfaces. Those do still exist, but are now most commonly voice-operated tasks of the main computer. Anyone in the area you call can tap their communicator or simply respond without having to specify a recipient. For ship-wide communication, only senior officers can initiate one through voice, but they can be activated by the communications officer at their dedicated station. So when you say your name or location, the computer can be nearly certain that you're about to ask for a communication channel. By the time an officer has said, Bridge 2, the computer has already established a multi-option logic tree for what paths to take with your message, prioritized by the same algorithm of likeliness we discovered. Prioritized by the same algorithm of likeliness discussed earlier. Your communication command is recorded and routed to the appropriate location within 100 milliseconds, less time than it takes to say bridge to engineering. The effect of this is seemingly instantaneous transmission. 
which is why you don't have to wait for a response before saying something like, Bridge to Engineering, what the hell's going on down there? The invention of parallel, simultaneous computation, what used to be called quantum computing, allowed this and other complicated tasks to become much more routine. The introduction of isolinear processors and multi-quad storage devices, which have substantial computing power built in, means that all of the necessary protocols are not stored and accessed, but run in what is effectively a real-time parallel. The computer is already likely connecting your call to engineering by the second syllable of the word engineering, wherein it seamlessly meshes the first part of your call. By the time the recipient activates their comm badge or terminal, the voice file you initially sent has finished transmitting and you are established in a live two-way call, or as live as it comes. In some cases, communicators can serve purposes beyond basic communication. One of these capabilities is to serve as a basic conduit of information between a generic tricorder and your ship's computer banks, enabling landing parties to remotely utilize the ship's profuse analytical equipment. The idea being that the communicator can remain as a portable hand tool and its capacity to be operated in conjunction with the tricorder, an independently operational device, but still network with your ship's computer. There are some other fun functions too. For instance, the power signature of a Starfleet communicator can be amplified by an inverse carrier wave, making the communicator detectable by sensors. Another example, when accessing the computer, the communicator of a specific person at a terminal logged in by the user information makes it possible to trace back who accessed that computer, which is a little shady. Communicators are also often used to allow transporter locks for beaming, thus acting as homing transponders. In fact, there were long periods where a communicator was the only effective way to track and transport a specific person. When used in tandem, two communicators could produce a sonic disruption by using sound beams, creating a sympathetic vibration in an unstable object. Usage of a communicator while receiving and outputting a signal could be hidden from sensors by triaxialization. They've also been known to be rigged into crude force field generators with minimal modification. Ship to ship, ship to planet, or ship to base communications typically send their electromagnetic packages through subspace to a subspace receiver, though they can still send and receive messages through more antiquated methods. Though these messages can travel an impressive six light years an hour, these signals can dissipate over great distances. To combat this, Starfleet created a vast network of subspace relays throughout the Alpha and Beta quadrants to give Grandma's birthday wishes a fresh boost along the way. This is also known as the Hyper Channel, and it's the way that our audio-only listeners are tuning into us right now. So, thank the communicator for bringing my sultry voice into your homes and workplaces, though I can't help you with that cloud thing. and all related marks, logos, and characters are solely owned by CBS Studios Inc. This fan production is not endorsed by, sponsored by, nor affiliated with CBS, Paramount Pictures, or any other Star Trek franchise, and is a non-commercial fan-made film intended for recreational use. 
No commercial exhibition or distribution is permitted. No alleged independent rights will be asserted against CBS or Paramount Pictures. Live long and prosper.